Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of Acts this morning. If you want to start turning towards Acts chapter 2. We're in this uh, position. Oh, yeah, kids can go to kids' church. Before we have a riot on our hands. Everybody look at Mary. So she feels <laughs> Just kidding. We love Mary and we appreciate Mary. And I'm glad I've been here long enough I can start giving her a hard time. That's, I feel like that's a milestone. Denise, I gave you a hard time like the day before I met you, I think. We're at this interesting place in the church calendar. We're in between our celebration of Easter and our celebration of Pentecost. Um, I don't, I don't always structure my sermons this way, but a lot of the time in the around Easter, around Christmas, I follow the uh, Revised Common Lectionary. And if you don't know what that is, uh, it's a, a reading that's given for every Sunday. And there's an Old Testament reading, and a Gospel reading, and an Epistle reading, uh, and it's on a three-year rotation. And it just—it's a way for preachers to ensure that we uh, preach every text of the Bible faithfully, and there's accountability. Uh, There's also something I love about preaching the lectionary, which is that when we preach it, when we read it, we gather with thousands of churches around the world and and studying the same scriptures. Uh, And what's really amazing to me, because some people, when they hear that, some preachers would say, well, isn't it hard to, you know, connect your messages together? And doesn't that mean that you don't get to preach the things you think you need to be preaching? And uh, it's really interesting to me how that's never the case. I've, I've preached it, the lectionary off and on for years now, and I've had six-part sermon series that just came together from the lectionary, uh, unintentionally. One time I was three messages in and said, huh, this is kind of a series, isn't it? Because we've been talking about the same thing for three weeks, and then we continued it for another four. Uh, this morning is, is no different. As I read through the lectionary readings for this week, um, and I, you know, not necessarily tied down to them, but I start there. It was interesting how much the, the texts this week tied into and followed out of the conversation we were having last week. Uh, so I'm excited for what we have today. And we're in this period, like I said, between Easter and Pentecost. And it's a great season because it reminds us of the time that the disciples spent between Easter and Pentecost. And we don't know a lot about that time. We know that there was this 40-day period where Jesus was to some degree among them. The stories that we have about it are all he comes into their midst and then he leaves and then he shows up again. So we don't know what it looked like. We don't really have the list of those teachings, although I'm sure we all wish that we could have them. Uh, but we know that for this period, Jesus was with the disciples and uh, he, was, he was teaching the disciples and then he ascended and then they waited for the coming spirit. And we don't know a lot about what was happening there other than that they waited. And I think that's important for us because we in our lives experience many times of waiting, right? Times where we are not doing what feels like anything. We're certainly not doing what we feel we're called to be doing. And sometimes that's things like waiting for a job or waiting for 
uh, a circumstance to work out in our lives, waiting for relationships to come into our lives. We, we have these seasons where we are just waiting. And more often than not, they come to us because more often than not, we are not very thrilled about them. Because we don't like to feel like we're not doing anything. We don't enjoy feeling stagnant. And as someone who just came out of a full year where I wasn't up front preaching every Sunday and I wasn't leading board meetings and meeting with ministry leaders and um, I still did some of the visitation sort of stuff, but I understand that. It's difficult. But if the disciples could go through that period, then we can go through those periods And I think it's also a good reminder this time of year as we're leading up to Pentecost and the celebration of the outpouring of the Spirit that we take some time to prepare for what's next as well. I would go as far as to say that maybe there are times where we go before the Lord and say, God, I want to begin preparing for a change that you're going to make in my life next month or next week or somewhere in between that we have this idea that if there's something that God needs to do in our hearts and we know he needs to do it in our hearts, if we know we need to be renewed or refreshed, if we, we need a fresh outpouring of the spirit, if we need a new birth in some area of our life that we're struggling in, as soon as we're made aware of that, we should immediately run to the altar and begin to pray about it. But if I may be so bold as to say, sometimes we need to prepare for those. And so that's what I'm inviting us to, and that's what the message today is going to be about. I'm kind of giving a bit of the end at the beginning here, if anybody's really tired and you want to fall asleep after the next minute. What I would like us to do, May 28th is Pentecost this year, As a church, I would like us to begin now praying and preparing for that. And some of the messages between now and then are going to be about that specifically, and some of them won't, and we may not even mention it some Sundays between now and then, but I want us to look forward to Pentecost this year. As our church is entering into this new chapter, as our family, as as I, as a pastor, am entering into this new relationship in this new chapter, that... We look forward to Pentecost this year, expecting God to work in a new way. And I don't know what that's going to look like, and I'm not saying that I think that Brian's going to get up and start dancing around in worship as much as we would all enjoy that. I'm not being prescriptive about it. I'm not saying that there's going to be another version of the Asbury revival that happens here because God is going to work in the way he chooses and in the way that's best and But I would invite you with me to pray expectantly for God to work on that day this year and prepare ourselves for it. We're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like, what the future could look like today. So we're in Acts chapter 2 this morning. In uh, in Acts chapter 2, if you're there or if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you know that Acts chapter 2 is the account of what happens at Pentecost. And we're going to be in verse 42, which is what 
happens, and it's the description of what the church looked like immediately after. So for the majority of chapter 2 of Acts, we have uh, this, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then Peter gives this, this powerful sermon. And then in verse 41, it's it summarized and, and it ends with this. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. From there, from verses 42 to 47, Luke, who's writing the, the, the book of Acts, he gives us this synopsis of what that early church looked like. Now, what's interesting about this and why I love these few verses is that they give us the most fundamental, the, the most basic, just the purest look at what the church is. When the church, when the Christian church first began, right? When, the, when, when it was just getting started, when there was no time to add any, any, any fluff or any, anything else, there was not time for them to develop committees and develop programs. Just the, the basics, the bare bones of what the church was is what we see here. Now, I don't think the church should look exactly like that church did, right? Most of what was added to the church after that was good and was important. This church didn't have any scriptures, which when you had the 12 apostles in front of you was less of a problem, but it's, I think we would all agree it's good that we got scriptures after a period of time, right? I'm not saying that the church should have stayed like this or this is the ideal or that we should just get rid of our Bibles because they didn't have Bibles yet. That would be ridiculous that's not what i'm saying but it's interesting to look at what were the first things that popped up what was what was the foundation of the early church that description ends this way verse verse 47 luke says the church was doing this the church was praising god luke says the church was having favor with all the people and that the lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I read that last verse, I think to myself, I don't know how often I feel like that describes the church now. And said probably a better way, I really wish we could describe the church this way. I, I wish if there was one sentence to summarize who the church was, especially here in America, that we praise God, we have favor with all the people, and that the Lord adds to our number day by day those who are being saved. And as I meditated on that verse this week, as it just kind of kept playing in my mind, I just thought about how wonderful would it be how wonderful would it be if we spent most of our time praising God? If we spent most of our time not worrying or not planning or not arguing or, but just praising? How wonderful would it be if our churches found favor with the people around us? And I know that that leads to a whole complicated discussion. And I know the early church was persecuted, so obviously eventually they stopped finding favor with everyone. But I long to be a believer who, 
who shows Jesus to the world in a way that brings them joy and brings them peace. And of course, we all want to see the brokenhearted receive comfort and the lost be found and for God to bring people into his kingdom. We all desire to see that. So the question is, okay, well then, how did that happen for them? And thankfully, there's a bunch of verses before that that describe some of the other things that were going on in this early church that led to that reality. If you go back to verse 42, he says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you were here last week and you were a part of that discussion or if you tuned in online, you may have noticed some language in our first couple verses here that echoes what we discussed last week. As I was reading through this, I, it caught my eye immediately that the work of the early church was described as primarily two things, teaching and the fellowship. And so this is what we talked about last week, that our, our discipleship and our lives as Christians are incomplete if we have only teaching and learning or we have only fellowship and community. That it's those two things together that fully develop uh, not only psychologically our, our brains, but also just who we are as people, as, as persons. Right? It, is, it is the teaching and the living with one another. And here, it is shown again. Last week, we talked about how the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus as he was teaching them, but they recognized him in the breaking of bread as they sat around the table. And as I was reading this passage, as I was studying, as I, I spent a lot of time this week looking at the Old, Old Testament connections, this idea of breaking bread, this idea of the table, has incredibly deep roots in the Bible and in the people of Israel. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. So we, we have this idea of, of breaking bread. And if we read this passage just specifically in our modern understanding, um, especially in, in this after 2,000 years of focus on communion, the Eucharist, the, the, the Lord's Supper, right? We immediately think of communion and this somewhat fairly formal religious experience that we have in church when we come up and you get a little tiny cup and a little tiny wafer or a piece of bread or cracker or whatever it is. And then we go back to our seats and, and we do it together. But we talked last week about this a, a little bit, that for the Jewish people, the breaking of bread was a daily occurrence. It was at the beginning of the meal, they would take bread and they would break it and they would pray 
a blessing called the hemotzi over the bread. The blessing was, again, in English, because I still haven't learned it in Hebrew. Uh, the, the blessing is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. And that's how they began their meals. Now, on the Sabbath and on uh, special holidays and feasts, it was more prominent, it was more significant. But even day to day, as they would begin their meals, if they had bread, they would begin by breaking the bread and distributing it and blessing it in this way. And so it's easy in our context when we read this as breaking bread to just think and imagine these formal gatherings celebrating communion, right? But if we go back, if we look at how they understood it, it was something very different, and there was a lot more to it. Now, does that mean that they weren't celebrating communion in the early church? No, it doesn't mean that at all, but there's a lot more going on. If you go back even further, this gets really interesting. If you go back into the Old Testament, in Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24 uh, is where the, this originates, but we have instructions in these two chapters about something that is often referred to as the bread of the presence. Does anybody... Does that sound familiar to anybody? The bread of the presence? A few people? All right. So it was this practice in the Old Testament where there was bread, and there were 12 loaves of bread. They were baked from the finest flour from all 12 tribes of Israel. There was a certain family in Israel that always baked the bread. And they had a secret, I'm not making this up, they had a secret family recipe, and they didn't share it with anybody else. And at one point, the priests fired them and tried to get somebody else, and then the bread was terrible and got moldy every week, and they had to hire these people back, right? right. How many people have a secret bread recipe? We got a couple. So it was this special bread. It was They would sift the bread seven times. The flour would go through a set of seven sieves, before it was baked, and it was baked, there was something about the way they baked it that it would sit out for a week without going bad. And it was called the bread of the presence because the bread sat in front of the altar of the Lord in the tabernacle and later in the temple. So there's 12 loaves of bread, they represent the 12 tribes, and they sit in front of the presence of God. And so every Sabbath, new bread was baked. The priests would bring the bread into the tabernacle and replace the loaves. They would then take the old loaves, they would take it back and they would eat it, and that would feed the priests for the next few days. Uh, and it was, so it had a practical purpose, but it was, not repla- it was not taken down until there was something ready to replace it. And so the bread always sat in the presence of God, the bread that represented the people. And it was a symbol of God's communion with his people, of his fellowship with his people. Now, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 25, Leviticus 24 talks about the bread itself. Exodus 25 talks about where they put it. And they put it on a table. It wasn't any, uh, it wasn't an altar. It wasn't any kind of stand. It wasn't like something you would put a pot or a lamp on. It was specifically a table. It was the table that was made out of acacia wood, which is a, a very pure wood, and it can't be spoiled easily. The whole table was overlaid in gold. There was frankincense as an, an incense placed on the table. 
but but literally what it was was this bread baked to represent the tribes that sat at my translation a dining room table before the lord and that was a regular part of their worship and so the priests when they took the bread they would break it they broke it because it was the sabbath and it was work to use a knife to cut bread so they, that was the, the significance of breaking it and then they would eat it and so when we get to the new testament we need to remember that when we talk about bread that there was the significance of this old testament and into the new testament practice there was also this idea within judaism that the the table at home was a counterpart to the table in the temple and so when the head of a house would sit down to the meal and break bread at the table in their home it was i wasn't talking to you my watch wanted to preach with me when they got home and the head of the household would break the bread at home it was a connection between their their table in the house and the table in the presence of god connecting god's people to god's presence himself and so that was their practice and that's why bread was so significant it was first of all it was a symbol of of togetherness right bread was the basic ingredient for life it was the basic food it was the basic sustenance without bread in in their culture and with with their their farming methods and everything you could not survive it represented life and so to break bread with another person was to join together in the most fundamental life-giving aspect of, of your lives it was it was a very intimate thing to do in addition to that there was this idea that when you broke bread you were connected to the temple and to the presence of god and so it's important that we remember jesus through the table and i'm not taking anything away from that what i'm doing is adding to it because we in our modern understandings see the last supper when we think about breaking bread and we see at least for me growing up as a kid just observing what i could observe in church i ascribed all of the significance of the bread to the last supper and jesus's sacrifice but really the significance of the bread and of breaking it goes back a long time before that and bread has represented the fact that god wants us in his presence at all times in all moments in every season for thousands of years and so as we look at it that is the significance it has always been a spiritual practice and so luke tells us that the early church this is what they did they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching now it's a fairly easy one to understand the apostles would preach and they would teach and the people would learn and jesus had given them this entirely new way to understand the old testament scriptures and he didn't give them something that just got rid of everything they believed but they saw it with new eyes and in a new light and man doesn't god continue to do that for us today I think one of the that's one of the most important things that god does for us most of my prayer life is just me saying god teach me how to see this situation god i have this person right that I, i'm i'm working with that i'm dealing with that i'm putting up with teach me to see them the way you see them 
Teach me to see their brokenness. Teach me to see their need. And so that's what the disciples were doing. They were teaching these people an entirely new way to live and to understand scripture and understand their relationship with God. He says, and there was another thing. It didn't stop at teaching. There was also... There was also the fellowship. Now, if you go back into the Greek, I don't know what your translations say. I think most of them are the same way. And it reads like this in English, teaching and the fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and prayers. I think almost every translation reads that way. And that is the way it should be read. Because in the Greek, there is a word and in between fellowship and and teaching, or in between teaching and fellowship, there is not any such break between fellowship and then the breaking of bread and prayers. So a good way to read this, or a picture in your head as you're reading it, is to put the breaking of bread and prayers in parentheses. That what Luke is giving us is a breakdown of what it means to have fellowship. And we mentioned this a little bit last week as well, and that's really important for us for this reason. Anybody who's been involved in church planning over the years, especially those of us who have been on staff at churches, you get to this point where you've got some space you need to fill or there's something you need to do, but you're out of time and you're out of energy and you're out of money and you just call it fellowship, right? Brian, you don't have to admit to doing this. I'll take this one. I have done this, right? Uh, we should do something. What's the ministry going to be? What's the purpose? Is it going to be a kid? Well, it's, we really need some time of fellowship. And there have been times in my life, in church, I think we've probably all, many of us have done this at one point or another, and fellowship is just, well, if you put a bunch of Christians in, the, in a room together, it's ministry, right? Where, where two or three are gathered, he's there. If he's there, it's ministry. It's a real... It's like the, the putting on a show to watch your kids of ministry planning, right? I thought that one was more clever than that, but that's all right. It's, it's, it becomes this, well, if we just put ourselves in a room, it's fellowship, it's ministry, it's being the church. But what we discover through study and just looking at our reality that there's more to it than that. And though this is not a passage that's really Luke teaching, it's not, he's not giving us a sermon, he identifies for us, and he thinks to identify for us, even then, even 2,000 years ago, even as he's looking at what the church is just days and weeks after Pentecost, he thinks, I better make sure I'm clear about what I mean by fellowship. I better make sure I'm clear about what we're talking about. We're not talking about we go and we hear the teaching and then we go back to someone's house and we talk about the latest discus throwing competitions right he's not talking about well we go and we hear the teaching and we learn and then we go back and we 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 go for a walk or we just do any of these assorted activities that we would do in our everyday life now i'm not saying that's bad there's anything wrong with that i'm not i'm not you know if you're a sports fan i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that and if you wear a bruins shirt to church you're safe today yeah i bet he did 
right? But he says, that's not fellowship. I'm talking about something specific. Not that those things don't have a place, but that's not, that's not ultimately who we are. He says, fellowship is this. It is the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Now, fellowship is, I think, probably a lot more than just those two things. I think there's a lot more to it. Again, this isn't a teaching passage where he spells it all out for us, but I think those two things are significant. So when we look at Christian fellowship, when we look at, you know, okay, so if you are being fed in teaching and in your mind in church, which if you're here, at least this morning, you are, right? If you're hearing this, that one's pretty well covered, right? And there's a lot of things you can do besides just hearing me preach. There's, there's podcasts and there's video series and there's books you can read. If, if you are receiving that, the second half as we look at our Christian lives is the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the breaking of bread, again, it's not, well, you know, whenever you get together with other believers, you should have a little communion service in your living room. Right? I don't think that's what it's talking about. Uh, any, any scholar that I read this week that seems to do any significant amount of research and had any logic behind his answer said this is not talking exclusively about communion. It's this deeper idea, it's this Jewish idea of breaking bread, which is sitting around a table, which is giving thanks and blessing God, and being connected to the presence of God together as a group. That's the breaking of bread and the prayers. Which again, the prayers could be a lot of things. It could be the the prayers that they would go to the temple or the local synagogue for on a daily and weekly basis. It probably meant that. It probably also meant just praying together in their homes. That's what fellowship really is. So if you want to get together to watch a Red Sox game or to or to get together and do arts and crafts, or get together to, to go for a hike, or any of the other activities, which you all need to tell me what you do so I can work you into my illustrations. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's, that's wonderful, as long as, in the midst of it, we are breaking bread and being attentive to prayer. As long as we are coming together to sit around the table, to have intentional time sharing with one another, seeing one another, connecting ourselves to the presence of God, and that we are lifting one another in prayer. Now here's what's really important about this. Stop. Here's what's important. Because we have to remember what happens immediately before we get this summary, and we have to remember the phrase that comes afterwards. Because this isn't something that we can just make happen. We can't accomplish this. This isn't a formula. We need to be reminded of what happened before this, which was that the day of Pentecost came, and the believers were together, They were in one mind. They were surrendered. They had no idea what God was going to do, 
right? At, at this point, we hope that the disciples were starting to understand more of Jesus was telling them. They really didn't get the crucifixion. They were all surprised by it, even though we like to think that they shouldn't have been. But there was no, there was no way to know, right, what was coming. There, there was, it, even as we read the scriptures in hindsight, there was no way for them to know what the day of Pentecost was going to look like. But they were open to whatever God was going to do. And so the Spirit came upon them, and 3,000 people came to faith in a single day through this sermon that Peter didn't prepare. Because he's refer- the whole sermon, he's referencing what happened. I'm going to try not to sneak into a Pentecost sermon now. But it was that day of Pentecost. It was that coming of the Spirit that changed them deeply from within. And in response to that, in order to be faithful to that, in order for that spirit to have the, the, most, the, the greatest ability to work in their lives, they dedicated themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And the, de- the devotion to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship by itself would not have done what it did. Devotion to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship by itself would not led, have led to them praising God and especially with having favor with all the people. And you've probably seen this happen. There are, there are churches and things like churches that really exemplify this where they all really know what they believe and they're really, really gathered together and really close-knit and they've got their community. And what we see come out of those situations is not grace, but judgment and pain and hurt. You see, you can devote yourself to, to the teaching. You can devote yourself to a fellowship and a unity among a body. But if it's not driven by the work of the Spirit, that's not, it's not the church. Not the church. And so this is why I'm inviting you to look forward to Pentecost this year. Because we can come up with all the best programs and we can, we can read all the best books on church leadership and church structure and, and we can do all sorts of things. But if it isn't driven by the power of the Spirit... It's not going to produce fruit. Or at least it's not going to produce good fruit. A question came up in the men's uh, Sunday school class uh, weeks ago, so a while ago. It was one of the first weeks I was here. And we talked a little bit about what was it that was going on in the Nazarene church when it first started in the early 1900s that enabled it to grow so rapidly and to do so many powerful things. And that question has stuck with me for weeks since, and I've continued to think about it. And And we can look at things like camp meetings. We can look at things like revivals. We can look at things like the music they were singing or the way that they were preaching or on down the list. But ultimately, ultimately, looking at the early church in Acts, looking at the early Nazarene church, what they have in common is They were ready for God to do something different. 
They were looking for God to send his spirit upon them and they didn't know what that was going to look like. But they were ready for it. They prayed for it. And when it came, they were ready to act. And through all that, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We are responsible for teaching. We are responsible for fellowship, for breaking bread and for prayers. We are responsible for praising God. But the saving people isn't on us. I think for some of us, that's a message of hope. That's a burden being released because we, every one of us, myself included, fall into feeling the burden of saving other people. And we're not responsible for that. So over the next few weeks in your private prayer time, or your prayer time as a family, if you're gathering with each other, which I would love for you to do, let's pray together as a church, as individuals who sit in pews, as ministry leaders who lead in children's ministries or worship ministries or whatever you do, let us pray and expectantly look forward to God for God to work in our church. And maybe it'll be the Sunday before Pentecost, which is the Sunday that I'm not going to be here. And that would be... I'm not even going to say, say it'll be sad for me. It's not my ideal. Maybe it'll be the Sunday before Pentecost. But are we open? Are we truly open? Are we truly ready? And I believe God will do things in our lives and in our church that we don't expect and sometimes that we don't understand. And let us pray that we're ready to be faithful to it. And for whatever he wants to do in your life today, that we would be open and faithful to it. But I also want us to be looking forward as a church to take some time to prepare our hearts and to come together in opening ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, I can't imagine those days leading up to Pentecost. I wonder what the disciples were thinking. It seems that at that point they had stopped being impatient, they had stopped being worried, they had stopped being concerned, and they were they were truly and patiently waiting for what you were going to do. That they were not frustrated that you weren't doing anything, that they were at peace. And yet I wonder what they thought was going to happen. How they pictured what was to come, whether they knew what it was going to look like. But I know, Lord, that when your spirit fell, there was awe, there was wonder, there was confusion. 
in the hearts of all who witnessed and those who came out of buildings and walked down down streets and couldn't understand how they were hearing in their own language. They were so surprised, but we don't see that. We don't see that in the disciples. When Peter stands up to preach, he is not bewildered. He's not caught off guard. And there was no way for him to know exactly what that was going to look like and how it was all going to play out. And at least we have no indication that he knew what to expect circumstantially. There's no reason to, for us to, to think that he knew that there would be tongues of fire or the understanding in other languages all in that moment. And yet he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He's not taken aback because, Lord, he knew that your spirit was going to come. He knew that your presence was going to be poured out. He knew that amazing things were going to happen, that people's lives were going to be changed. And though we may never know the day or the hour or the minute that you will work and that we will be a part of it, we expect that it will happen. Sometimes, God, we get tired. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes... Things aren't working out as we hoped they would. And we begin in our hearts to doubt. Not maybe doubt that you exist, not doubt that you love us, but just it feels like the promises are a long way off. So Lord, I pray for strength and perseverance that we don't grow tired as we wait for your presence to fall. But as a church, we come together because we don't know what you're going to do here at New Beginnings. We don't know what you're going to do in the Kish family or any other family here. We don't know what difficult steps will lie along the way, will we'll be on the road to wherever you have for us, but we know, Lord, that your spirit is within us. That your presence is ready to be poured out. That when we are ready, that when we are open, when we are surrendered, that you will work in our midst. And so, Lord, I pray that we all take the coming weeks to take a look at ourselves, to listen as you tell us if, if there are things in our lives that need to change, things that we need to let go of, if there is unconfessed sin in our life that is hurting us and hurting those around us, if there are obstacles that need to be removed for you to work, I pray that we be open to seeing them and giving them up to you. I pray that we take this time as a church to let you do whatever work needs to be done so that we are ready for what you have for us. In the same way, Lord, as many of us in New England are taking snow tires off our cars and putting our summers on because that's the road that lies ahead, shape us. Because you see the road ahead more than we do. Even things, Lord, that aren't bad. Even if it's not a sin, an infirmity, a bad habit, a a wrong attitude, 
things within us and within our church that are just becoming out of season. Let us not cling to them. Father, as I lead this church, God, not my will, but yours be done. Not my preference, not my style. Let me lead in faithfulness to you. May I speak your words, your thoughts, your ideas. And as we go today, Lord, put people in our paths to love. As we go today, as some of us go out to eat and some of us go home, if we go to the grocery store, Lord, put people in our paths to love, to care for, to lend a helping hand, to provide support. We want to be a church that above all else worships. More than anything else we do, more than I worry, more than I complain, more than I plan, more than I more than I preach, more than I I want to worship. Let us be focused and let us be faithful. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.